David and team for leading us in worship. Well, this morning we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 61. And while you're turning there, let me take a moment to, first of all, just recognize a few of our newest people. We had promotion today in our children's ministry, our student ministry, our preschool ministry, which means we have a whole batch of new pre-Kers who are with us today. And they'll also get to go to Kids Crew Worship in just a moment. So I want to recognize them as they make their way. Right now, we're going to dismiss all of our kids who are fourth grade and under to head upstairs with our leaders. For Kids Crew, this is a time of worship designed specifically for children where they engage with the stories of Scripture on their level and get to dig into the Bible. We're excited for them to study and grateful for all of our leaders who pour into them. This summer, really all year long, we are working our way through the Bible. So what we're doing is we have a Bible reading plan that we are reading through together as a church. At least we're, I hope you're reading along with us. And let me just say that if you are reading along and you're, and you're tracking and you're on pace and everything is good, then great. And if you're behind somehow, then can I just say that's okay too? Because the point isn't to try to turn this into a legalistic like thing that you got to do or don't do, but rather to engage the scripture so that we spend time studying the word of God together, digging into the scripture. And as we're working our way through each Sunday, I'm taking a text that is from this past week's reading. And that's what we're, that's what we're studying together. So this morning we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 61. And the passage of scripture that we're going to look at in Isaiah 61 is a really profound passage because not only does it offer us a glimpse of things that are to come, but we recognize by the writings of the New Testament, particularly the work of the gospel, Luke, that Jesus is the very fulfillment of these things. And the reason we know that is because in Luke chapter four, Jesus reads from the Isaiah scroll in the synagogue on a Sabbath, and he actually reads from Isaiah 61. And then he closes the, the scroll and he tells everyone that today this has been fulfilled in your presence. And so, so Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment. Now, as Isaiah is speaking and prophesying, He's speaking with a, a sort of a prophetic voice, a future voice of things to come. But Jesus is the fulfillment. And that's what I want us to see today. It's how Jesus fulfills everything that we need. In fact, he is the good news. He's the embodiment of the good news of God made available to us. We're going to study that from Isaiah 61 together this morning. In 1958, a man named Peter Stoner, Dr. Peter Stoner, wrote a book. The name of his book was Bible Science. And so what Dr. Stoner sought to do with his book, Bible Science, was to, to show how the, the Bible fits in a modern worldview, how the Bible fits with our modern ideas of science and logic and understanding of all these things, how the scriptures fit that, because ultimately, I think one of the main points that Dr. Stoner argues for is that, that the logic that, that we understand and know, reason and these things as we understand them, ultimately come from God. God himself is the architect of truth and certainly these things. And so in his book, in trying to put all these pieces together, Dr. Stoner writes that he, he did some mathematical calculations and he says that the probability of Jesus fulfilling any one of the prophecies of the Old Testament would be 
he, as he puts it, about one in 300,000. Now, if you really want to understand the, the math that he uses, you're going to need to find the book Bible Science by Peter Stoner, and you're going to need to read that for yourself. I'm not going to dive into all of that today. But let me tell you a little bit about this, he, because he goes even further, and he says that the probability of Jesus fulfilling eight prophecies, eight, not just one, but eight prophecies from the Old Testament, he calculates to be one times 10 to the 17th power. That would be one times 10 with 17 zeros behind it. I don't even know what number that is, but it's a really great number. And, or we might say it's a really small probability that Jesus could fulfill eight of these prophecies. And yet when we study the scriptures, we see Jesus fulfill more than eight, numerous. This is the way Dr. Stoner described the probability of Jesus fulfilling eight of the prophecies of the Old Testament. He said it would be like taking the state of Texas. So imagine the state of Texas. Anybody from Texas, you might refer to it as the Republic of Texas, right? But uh, you're not that special. It's just a state, right? The air is better on this side of the river. But he says, Dr. Stoner says, it's like taking the state of Texas, and if you were to cover the state of Texas knee-deep in quarters, okay? So imagine the magnitude of that. If you've ever driven across Texas, you know it's massive. Take the state of Texas, cover it knee-deep in quarters. He says, then take any one quarter, randomly mark it, toss it somewhere into that mix, he says that the probability of one times 10 to the 17th power is like the probability of you reaching into the state of Texas and picking that one quarter that's been marked, okay? That seems impossible, right? Not even just implausible, but impossible, it seems. That's the probability that Dr. Stoner calculated, and yet Jesus did fulfill eight of these prophecies. The logical conclusion that he's trying to draw us to understand then is that the only real explanation that makes sense for that is that in fact, Jesus was the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. He was the anointed preacher of the gospel. He was the suffering servant. He was the branch of Jesse. He was the, the stump of David. He was the righteous one sent by God to to pay the price for and, and redeem his people from their sin. And not just the people of Israel, but all who would come to Jesus in faith. And this morning, as we study this text in Isaiah 61, and better yet, as we consider this in light of its fulfillment in Jesus, again, Jesus himself points us to understand it that way. I want us to consider that God has given us everything that we need in order to come to him and know him by faith. And I hope that you'll see that even as we dig in. So the, the, the center point of, of everything we're going to talk about today is good news. It's the gospel. Everything about this, everything about this text, everything about what Jesus tells us in, in the sense of his fulfillment of this text is pointing us to understand the good news, the gospel of Jesus. And so with that in mind, let's read together Isaiah 61, beginning in verse 1. We're going to read the first three verses together this morning and then study that a little deeper. Isaiah writes, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God 
to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. That last phrase is key because what, what all of this is pointing us to, the Isaiah says here, speaking again with this prophetic, this future voice, and what Jesus is reminding us of and pointing to his own fulfillment of this scripture is that the, the point of all of this, the point of understanding this is that we might see ourselves in this so that we might become even what this phrase speaks to, that you and I might be the oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord. Why? So that he may be glorified in us. And I pray that that would be true today as we understand this and we, we humble ourselves and, and, and live in obedience to what the scripture says. So there are three things you can follow along on the back of your worship guide that you received when you came in. There's some places that you can take notes and kind of fill in the blanks just to help track with what we're studying together this morning. And each of these points is going to help us to understand this, I, I think, in, in greater detail. So first of all, I want us to see that Jesus brought good news to those in need. Jesus brought good news to those in need. Seven, in seven different ways we see in this, in this text, this brief text in Isaiah 61, seven different ways that the Messiah, that's the anointed one, would proclaim this good news. Let's look at each of these. But first of all, let's just ask the question, who is this Messiah? Who is this anointed one? In fact, in the very opening phrase, we see that the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. The Lord has anointed me. And what is that anointing? What is an anointing? An anointing is a covering, is it not? You think of someone who's having something poured over them, like that's literally the picture that we often see in, particularly in Jewish religious practice, with that someone's head would be anointed with oil. Go to Psalm 23, for example. In Psalm 23, David the psalmist writes about God and the provision of the Lord. He says, you anoint my head with oil. Do you know the reason that that is there? Is because one of the things a shepherd would do is a shepherd would take oil and he would pour that over the sheep's head. And the reason is because, well, a sheep gets really woolly, right? Uh, of course they do, right? That's where wool comes from. It grows on sheep, right? But a sheep would get really woolly and their hair would get out of control. And so along the way, a sheep would get stuck in briars or thistles or get stuck in bushes or something of that nature. And so a shepherd, a good shepherd would take oil and he would anoint the sheep, so to speak. He would pour oil over them and comb the oil over their wool to cover them so that they might not get caught in things. It's a, it's a sign of protection, the psalmist writes, David writes, you anoint my head with oil. Well, the anointing here isn't just God's protection, but it's a sign of his covering in a sense. It's symbolic of the fact that God has chosen this one. In fact, the very word that we use, Messiah, is just an alliteration or transliteration, I should say, of the Hebrew word, Mashiach, which means anointed, the anointed one. Or we refer to Jesus as Jesus Christ, the Christ. That comes from a different language other than Hebrew, but the word Christ means the anointed one. So Jesus was God's anointed one. He was God's chosen one, God's covered one, if you will. Chosen by God to do what? to proclaim the good news, 
to proclaim the good news, this gospel, this good news. Well, what is the good news? Seven different things we see. First of all, he's to preach good news to the broke, the brokenhearted and the poor, right? We see that in the first verse, to bring good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted. So he, he brings this good news to them, this gospel news to them, that there is something greater, that even in the midst of their, of their poverty, and, and scholars ask, well, is that referring to spiritual poverty or is that referring to like actual poverty? And the answer is yes, right? It's, it's all of it. It's anyone who has need. There's a deficit in each of our lives. And I promise you, even if you have all the money in the world, and I don't know anybody that does, but even if you did, there still is such a thing as, as poverty in our lives. There's a, a spiritual poverty. There's, a, there's the fact that, that money can't buy you what you need the most, which is forgiveness of sins. And so... This, the writer here, Isaiah, speaks into this. And, and yes, he's talking to those who are actually poor, physically poor, but he's also talking to those who are spiritually poor. Everyone who has a deficit, everyone who has a need, which, by the way, is everyone, right? But he says to preach good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted. Think of that as putting back together the pieces, in a way, of, of solving that the problem of our brokenness, not only that, keep reading, right? The, to proclaim liberty, to proclaim liberty, the opening of prison to those who are bound. So imagine those who are bound. What are we bound by? We're bound by sin. And what, what is the message that we're being, that's being proclaimed? That there's, that there's freedom, that there's release from our captivity through faith in Jesus. We've been set free from the bondage of our sin. The Bible talks about that in so many places, but most beautifully, I think, in Ephesians chapter 2. Go to the opening verses and read in Ephesians chapter 2 and read to about verse 7 or 8, and it speaks so beautifully of that, that we have been set free in Christ. Not only that, but there's the Lord's favor, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance. Now, we need to be sure that we, that we balance these two things, favor and vengeance. In other words, judgment. Think of God's vengeance as his just punishment or his righteous judgment against sin. And so what is the anointed preacher here proclaiming? What is this preacher of the good news, this preacher of the gospel, Jesus even, as we'll see in Luke chapter 4? What is it that he's proclaiming? He's proclaiming that there is release from our captivity. He's proclaiming to us that God's favor, the year of the Lord's favor in that language we, we, we see sort of glimpses of the, the year of Jubilee. One of the things that was built into the Hebrew practice was that every 50 years, there would be a year when property would go back to landowners. So, so if you had property that was mortgaged, if you had debts of some sort, then on the 50th year, the property would go back to its original holders or the family of the original holders. Debts would be forgiven. Things would be, there would be a, a reset of happen. It was a year of favor. And this language hints at that. Only the favor here isn't talking again about, about physical debts, monetary debts, but rather our spiritual debts that we are indebted. And yet through Christ, we are set free. Our debts paid. We are released from bondage. Do you see the beauty of this picture? And he's saying, but not only that, but of God's judgment. That yes, there would be there would be the Lord's favor granted to those who trust in him, but also his vengeance, his righteous judgment 
against those who don't turn to him and sin. But we, we go on and we keep reading. That he would grant to those who mourn in Zion to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. Beauty for ashes, you've maybe heard that. There are some popular songs that we sing and it uses that language of beauty for ashes. Ashes was a sign of mourning in ancient culture, particularly in the, in the, in the Hebrew culture. In, so the Jews, one of the ways that they would symbolically demonstrate their, their mourning, their brokenness, is that they would cover themselves in in sackcloth, or think of like a, a burlap, a rough material like that, and they, would, and they would heap ashes on their head. They would literally, they would, they, would, they would sort of dust themselves or bathe themselves in ashes. That sounds kind of weird to us, but for them, it was a sign of mourning, symbolic of their brokenness. And instead of, instead of the ashes, instead of mourning, what Isaiah is saying is that the the anointed one will come, and he will give us beauty. He will restore our, our brokenness. He will give us something beautiful and new. He will take what's broken, and he will make it new by saving us. He'll exchange beauty for ashes. And then finally, all of this then, to grant to us that we may be called oaks of righteousness oaks of righteousness. What a, what a beautiful picture. If you just kind of follow the, the phrase by phrase, if you just follow this language, you see this, this beautiful transformation that takes place, that God sends his anointed one to proclaim good news. That anointed one was Jesus, and he brought this good news to those who are in need. And the point that I want you to see, that I hope you understand this morning, is that you are the one who was in need. When we think about, well, who is in need? Who needs this good news? Truth is, you need the good news. I need the good news. We all need the good news. Sometimes in the church, if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, we tend to think of the good news as the thing that we believe in in order to be saved. It's almost like the good news is, is the ticket that gets punched so that we enter the club, so to speak. But I want you to understand that we need the good news again and again and again. We need to be reminded of this truth. We need to think on, reflect on, consider the gospel, the good news of Jesus over and over again. Yes, it is powerful. It is mighty to save us when we turn to Jesus in faith. But it also is what we need to sustain us so that we may live in his power, live in the freedom the forgiveness that Jesus proclaimed to those who are in need. And who's in need? I am. You are. We all are. Everyone has this need. So we see that Jesus proclaims good news to those who are in need. Not only that, but the second thing I want us to see in this is that the gospel becomes truly good news when we share it with those in need. Now hear me, okay? You need to understand what I'm saying here. I'm not saying that you give the gospel some power that it doesn't already have. That's not what I mean. I don't, I don't mean because there's a very, what we would refer to as a very postmodern way of understanding a lot of things. And in a postmodern sense, if you know what postmodernism is, then, the, then you supply the meaning. Something takes on its meaning. It becomes important. It becomes truthful. When you, you ever hear people talk about my truth? You ever hear someone that uses that kind of language? Well, that's, this is my truth or that's my truth. 
That's a postmodern idea. I supply the truth because I give these things a certain credibility because I believe in them or I sent to them or I provide. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying the gospel becomes powerful because you believe it or you act on it. No, but what I mean is that for those who need the good news, who are lost in darkness the way that scriptures describe them, it becomes truly good news when you and I come to them and share with them this good news of Jesus. The gospel, which by the way, gospel just means God's spell. It's an old English way of saying good news. The good news becomes truly good news when those who need it receive it. Does that make sense? That's the point that I want to make here. Again, look at the audience in Isaiah 61, the poor, the brokenhearted, captives, those who are bound. These are people who, who, have, who have these deeply embedded problems. And again, who is that? It's you. It's me. We are the poor. We are the brokenhearted. We are the captive. We are those who are bound. We're, that's us. This is a picture of us. And this good news becomes truly good news when we, when we hear it, when we receive it by faith. The gospel becomes truly good news when it reaches those who need it. And so that means that you and I, if you're a believer, if you're a follower in Jesus, we have a role to play. We have a mission. We have a, a job, if you will, that we need to share this good news with everyone, because who needs the good news? Everyone needs the good news. We need to share this good news with others, that they too may understand, that they may believe. Let me just pause briefly and, and sort of insert a, a bit of a commercial. Next Sunday, August the 13th, we have someone who's going to be with us to do some evangelism training. And so during our during our Sunday school hour, all of our adult Sunday school departments are going to meet together in our fellowship hall next Sunday. And, and if you're here for that, you'll get a copy of a book that he's written. His name is Preston Condra. I've known Preston since I was uh, a little guy. In fact, when I was in junior high, Preston was an intern in my student ministry where I went to church at the First Baptist Church of Moore years and years ago. He went on to be staff, on staff at Emmanuel Baptist Church in Duncan for many years, and then he, uh, he branched out and worked with a, a parachurch ministry that's called Watchman Ministry, and then from there he, he began writing curriculum, and now the Southern Baptist Convention of Texas has taken some of the curriculum that he's written, and they've put it in book form, and they use it for evangelism training with those churches. And so Preston is going to come and he's going to share with us this training. And the training is pretty simple. It's just called, can I ask you a question? And the whole idea is to try to engage people with asking questions. And you don't have to have all the answers for every question. This isn't about having the answer to everything, but it's about listening. It's about learning to listen to people's questions and finding within those questions an opening to share Jesus with them. Again, not to try to solve all their problems, not try to, that's not your job. You don't have to do that, but just pointing them to Jesus and doing that in a way that's that's conversational, doing that in a way that's personal and relational. And so he's going to be here next Sunday morning. He's going to do the training during our Sunday school hour. And then in our worship hour, he's actually going to preach and talk more about that as well so that we might be better equipped to share our faith. Now that's just a step. 
It's just a step. That's all that it is. But we think it's important to have these kinds of steps and to equip ourselves so that we might be prepared to give a defense of the hope that is within us. That's what 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 tells us to do. And so we want to help equip ourselves. We want to be ready to share a defense of the gospel, of the good news, so that we can share that with others. Because the gospel, the good news, is truly good news for those that need it. When they hear it, when they receive it. And then finally we see this. That the truly good news is that Jesus has exactly what you need. The truly good news that I want you to see in all of this is how Jesus fulfills this passage of Scripture in Isaiah chapter 61. In fact, turn to Luke chapter 4. You have a Bible? Turn quickly to Luke chapter 4. And it's okay if you need to look up the gospel of Luke in the, uh, like in the table of contents of your Bible. There's no shame in that. You just, you turn to the front, you find Luke. Turn to Luke chapter 4 and then look at verse 16. In Luke chapter 4, we find that Jesus enters into a synagogue on a Sabbath. The synagogue would have been the place of religious teaching, sort of like their church. It's not exactly the same, but let's just think of it for all intents and purposes in this example, that it's like Jesus is going to church on the Sabbath, okay? And he enters into the synagogue, and he is invited, anyone who's there is invited to to read. And so this particular synagogue has a copy of an Isaiah scroll. Not every synagogue would have had the entire Old Testament. Not every synagogue would have had an Isaiah scroll for that matter. But this synagogue has an Isaiah scroll. Jesus opens the Isaiah scroll and he begins to read. And where does he read? He reads from Isaiah chapter 61. And so we read about this beginning in Luke 4 verse 16. He came to Nazareth where he had been brought up And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. And then Jesus reads, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to to the captives and recover of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. What is it that Jesus says? Jesus says, you have seen this. What what does he mean? Of course, he means that Jesus has come. He's saying, I am the one who has come to proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Jesus came so that we may hear the good news. Because the good news is pointing us to Jesus. Because the good news is all about Jesus. The gospel itself points us to faith in Jesus. And the good news for us today is that if we would turn to Jesus in faith, we can be saved. We can be set free from the bondage of our sin. We can have life restored to us. We can receive beauty in exchange for ashes. We, all of these things that Isaiah promises would happen are made true through faith in Jesus. And today, if you would trust him, all of this can be true for you as well. So in a moment, we're going to move into a time of invitation and a time of response where we, where we sing a song. And in that moment, We want to invite you today, if you're ready to trust in Jesus, to receive this good news that you would place your faith and trust in him. But before we do that, let me me point out one other thing in Isaiah 61. Because in Isaiah 61, we we see that the, the passage ends with this. Because 
Sometimes the temptation is to think that, well, that's okay, that's the good news. I've trusted Jesus. I know I've been saved from my sin, so that's for, that's for other people. But I want you to see that this is for you. This is for everyone today. Even if you've walked with Jesus for a long time. Because what's the point of all of this, Isaiah tells us? Look at the last phrase in Isaiah 61.3. That they, who's the they there? That's you. If you've trusted Jesus. That they may be called oaks of righteousness. The planting of the Lord. That he may be glorified. Have you ever had a tree that you watched grow over time? It's really a, a, a neat thing to watch. And so we have this tree in our backyard. We have lived here in Chickasha for about 12 and a half years now. Uh, and, and so when we moved into our house, within the first few months of being in our house, we had a tree in the backyard that got blown over entirely in a storm. Like it just pushed it over at, at the root. And so we cut that up and we, we got rid of it and we planted a new tree in its place. And the tree that we planted in its place 12 years ago at that time was, uh, it stood about, oh, it stood about 15 feet tall or so. And now 12 years later, that same tree, now I haven't measured this, I'm guessing, okay? And, and as like any good Baptist minister, I may overshoot it just a little bit. But I'm guessing that that tree now stands about 30 or more feet tall, like at its, at its height. It's, it's grown so much in the last 12 years. And it's been really cool to watch this little tree like take off and, and grow. And the picture here of an oak of righteousness, again, there's an allusion here to something that we can understand, kind of a, a metaphor, a word picture. But it also points us back to the scripture because in Psalm chapter 1, we read about a tree that is planted near rivers of water. And the, the whole point is that the tree grows because the water supplies what it needs. The water feeds it. The water is its source of life, its source of sustenance. And it grows and its roots go down deep and strong. And that's the picture here of an oak of righteousness. The word oak is chosen, that tree particularly is chosen because of the strength of oaks, because they put down deep roots, because they become deeply implanted. And so the Again, the, the metaphor, the picture, if you will, is meant to point us to having a deep faith, deep roots that go down deep, that dig into the richness of God's mercy and his grace, that are sustained by and anchored by the hope that we have in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we may become oaks of righteousness. How do you become an oak of righteousness? You plant your life near streams of living water, Psalm chapter 1. You, you are fed by the hope that is yours through faith in Jesus. You are watered, if you will, again, to borrow the language from Psalm 1. You're watered by the very hope that springs eternal. Jesus himself in John chapter 4, we read from Luke chapter 4, but in John chapter 4, Jesus says to the woman at the water, he says, I'm the living water. And anyone who comes to me will never thirst again. If you want to be fed by that source of life, then you must stay connected to Jesus. So the gospel isn't just good news that gets you out of the prison of sin, but it's the, it's the same good news that will sustain you every day of your life so that you might become an oak of righteousness. Why? So that you may glorify the Lord. And that's the point, is that everything that you would do would bring honor and glory to the Lord. Do you want to live your life for him? 
then you need to trust in Jesus by faith. You need to believe in the good news, the gospel of Jesus. Do you want to be sustained through life's storms? Do you want to put down deep roots? Then you need to be watered by the hope that is ours through centering our lives on the gospel of Jesus. Jesus is the anointed one, the chosen one of God who preaches the good news to us. And when we anchor our lives to him, we can become oaks of righteousness. Jesus has exactly what you need. Will you turn to him in faith today? I want to invite you to bow your heads with me and close your eyes. And for a moment, I want you to consider, I want you to consider this simple question. What is your greatest need? If you were to think about your life today, in this moment, at this stage in life, in this very, in this very place, what would you identify as your greatest need? Can I assure you that no matter what it is, Jesus has what you need. He is the source. And if you will turn to him, this is not an easy believism. This is not a come to Jesus and all your problems are solved. This is not a, you know, a pray a prayer and, and, uh, and you get everything you need. No, this goes actually so much deeper, so much further than all of that. That's just the surface. This goes much deeper. That if you would trust in Jesus, you will find the source of what you need. And so, Lord, as we look to you in faith today, we pray that you would guide our hearts to know your truth. That our, that, that our, our roots, if we can, again, borrow that language, would, be, would, would go down deep, would be fed by your eternal uh, water, that, that hope that springs eternal, that living water, that source of of, of goodness that is found in you, Jesus. And so we look to you by faith today. We humble ourselves before you, admitting that you have everything we need, Jesus, and that when we turn to you in faith, we find hope. Move in our hearts now as we respond in obedience to your word. All this we pray in your name. Amen. I want to invite you to stand with me this morning as we sing this beautiful,